Guys, welcome back to another episode of Trail Culture. I am very stoked to have Simon Duvall back on the podcast with us today. Um, things are going to be a little bit different as you can see. And as you guys know, Simon was here a couple of weeks ago to talk to us about his research and performance prediction in trail running. And today we're introducing our trail science episodes. The name is still being workshopped. If anyone has any other recommendations, please let us know. We, we know a lot about running, but our creative sides are lacking slightly. And yeah, you guys are going to see these episodes more frequently from now on. The idea is to tackle some hot topics that are in the trail running world, see what's backed up by research, see what's evolving and emerging, and basically just to yeah, have some interesting conversations around some emerging ideas. And today we are going to be talking about pacing strategies in ultra trail running. We're starting off with what pacing is, how to pace your ultra marathon, why you should pace your ultra marathon, and we're even going to take a little bit of a specific dive into UTCT, some results from that, and how the pacing strategies were linked to that. Um, and yeah, that race is this weekend, so hopefully there's some relevance for you guys. So welcome, Simon. Thanks very much, Emily. Nice to be back on the on the podcast and. Really looking forward to chatting a bit more about pacing, especially with UTCT on the do- on the doorstep. Yes. So we can we can crack on and get straight into it. Okay, awesome. So I think first things first, um, as Simon taught me back in the research days at the department, is let's just define some the basics for those who don't know. So yeah, for as I said, first episode, we're taking a deep dive into pacing and ultra running and Simon's research has led him into the space personally. And we're also going to be pulling from some research done by other authors. Uh, All the links will be in the show notes for the nerds who actually want to read those things. But Simon, let's start with what is pacing? Good question. And I, I like the nod towards the academia there. It's always good to have operational definitions before you start <laughs> working. So uh, pacing is essentially how we distribute work, or you can think of that as uh, our energy expenditure during an exercise task. So in case of, of the trail running, it would be how we distribute the work over the course of the entire race. Um, there's a there's a looped communication system between the brain and the, the central nervous system and then the working muscles, the peripheral nervous system. And this is quite a complex communication loop. Um, and we call that, or the literature that's called the teleoanticipatory system. And essentially, pacing is, is a learned behavior. So the more you do something, the better you become at pacing that activity. So in the case yes. of an ultra race, if, you do, if you're doing it for the first time, you probably are not going to pace it optimally because that communication system doesn't have a, a clear idea of what it takes to get the task done. Um, a good example is the first time I ever tried to do triathlon, I, <laughs> I had to swim sev- 750 meters in a swimming pool. And um, I went out all guns blazing, you know, freestyle, thinking I'll definitely uh, have this waxed. And I think by about the fourth lap, which it was a 50 meter pool, so after about 200 meters, I was on my back doing doing backstroke because I couldn't couldn't keep up with the with the demands of the task. So um, you'll know as a, as a coach, sometimes we, we want to get an idea of where our target works work rate zones or heart rate zones are. 
Yeah. And one thing that, that you'll know is that if you put an amateur through a, a three-minute FTP test, for example, they're not going to pace it optimally. So they'll probably go out far too hard um, and they'll start to kind of hit the wall uh, yeah. closer towards the end. And um, So that's a, that's a common example, maybe like a par run for somebody on the weekend. Doing it for the first time, uh, you might struggle to pace the, the race optimally. And um, of course, bringing it back to ultra trail running, there's so many variables that come into play with with optimal pacing. Yeah. We'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, I think what one of the reasons why we wanted to bring this up is when people think of pacing strategies and what you call, you know, the elusive negative split, we largely associate that with road running. Um, I don't know if yes. I've ever successfully mm. actually done a negative split but any case story for another day yeah and do as i say not i do i i always uh, <laughs> tell myself that as well i'm like i'll tell everyone no you need to run a negative split and then i'll get to the start line and um we white line fever and you yes. just you go all guns blazing out the gates and, and you just start to uh to seriously tie in the in the second half but yes do what do as we say not as we do Exactly. And I think what's been interesting about this is kind of as there's a lot of research emerging around, there are successful pacing strategies within ultra trail running and mountain running, mm. despite large kind of well, variations in, in speed, gradient, terrain, all of those things. And we're going to get stuck into that now. Um, but Simon, cool. what, and okay, so we're looking at research where They've taken, the researchers um, have taken large, so say they have to use Hoffman et al., which is one of the first things we're going to look at, yes. large amounts of runners, and they've conducted a pacing analysis on specific events, trail races. And when we say large numbers, we're talking thousands of participants. This is kind of across yeah. the board. It's also not just an elite thing. We're going to comment on, is this more relevant for kind of your elite standard athlete or not a bit later, yes. but how do you conduct a pacing analysis? So we're going to look at this now, but what have the researchers yeah. done? Well, you're quite right. The, the pacing analyses that are done in ultra trail running very much use the framework of road running. Um, so again, adopting that and applying that into a, a trail running setting. And that presents certain complications, of course. If you if you look at marathons, whether you're running Berlin, London, Cape Town, Hull, I mean, even Boston, which is supposed to be, <laughs> you know, the, the, the run with all the climbs, I think there's about 900 feet, so 300 meters or so over, yes. over the marathon. I mean, those are all flat, like a, a trail runner would say that's flat. Um, <laughs> so, we, but we, we've adopted that same pacing analysis from from uh, road running and typically what's done is we look at the kilometer splits you could choose you could look at kilometer splits 5k splits uh, you know whatever type whatever kind of segment data you have and then you look at how those splits change over the course of a race yes. so what you might do is first of all not look at absolute speed because it's a little bit unfair if I'm comparing myself my absolute speed on a on a marathon let's say to Iliad Kipchoge obviously the pacing is going to look very yeah. different right between between the two of us hardly so Simon. if we want to really <clears throat> no oh thank you you're too kind um no so so you we each would would pace it differently and how you look at that is you get a what's called a relative pace 
So you could take the average speed of, of the athlete over the course of the, the race. And then for each segment, you define that as a percentage of average speed. So for example, if average speed for the race was six minutes per kilometer, but they ran one, a one kilometer segment at five minutes, 20, and that's roughly 10% faster than um, the, the average pace for the race. Yeah. And so we'll say for that segment, they ran it at 110% of their, um, of their average pace. And then, then we'll look at segment two. So maybe that's kilometer one to two. And in that one, they ran it at six minutes, 40. And then we can say, well, that's roughly 10% slower than the average pace. So that was at 90% of their average pace. So um, we get some sort of a relative effort. And that will help us to compare, as I say, compare apples with apples. So that even if we're looking at Kipchoge or Simon, um, we're still looking at their relative pace and how that changed over the course of the race. Yes. Um, one other thing that that we look at typically is something called the coefficient of variation or coefficient of variation percentage. So the coefficient of variation is a, a ratio of the standard deviation to the mean. Okay, so the mean is the average pace for the whole race, and then the stand the standard deviation is the variation in pace for each of those segments. So let's say you had forty two segments for for a marathon, uh, they're not going to all be paced exactly the same. There's going to be variation in pace for each of those segments. And so you look at the ratio of the standard deviation to the mean, and that tells you how much variation there is in pacing. If you yeah. multiply that, you get it as, uh, if you multiply that by 100, you get it as a percentage. And essentially, if you take you back to your like old school, high school maths, um, or maybe it was primary school maths, I can't remember, but you get a numerator and a denominator, right? So this is a ratio where the standard deviation is the numerator and, and the mean is the denominator. And we know that if the numerator gets bigger, that means that the number gets bigger. Yeah. And so if the standard deviation, in other words, if the variation in pace gets bigger, then um well, if the, yeah, if the standard deviation gets bigger, which is the variation in pace, then we know that they had a less even pacing strategy. So okay. closer that number is to zero, more yes. even the pacing strategy would be. The further away it gets from zero, uh, the more variation between all of yes. the segments. So based on our comment earlier yeah, about when the first time you do something, you're not necessarily going to execute it perfectly. So you would the kind of your amateur athletes or people doing something for maybe the first or second time would have a higher variation in their pacing strategy yeah, so than you lower. Would you would typically see a higher coefficient of variation in amateur or sub elite runners compared to elite or professional runners. So that's consistent across all of the literature, which we can we can dive into a little bit. But yes, um, cool. certainly, the, even in, and this is the limitation. So obviously in, in road running, I've brought up kind of Berlin, London, whatever. You can, you can directly compare your performance in the marathon between Cape Town Marathon and uh, London Marathon, if you did both of them, because they are so similar in terms of the demands of the activity. But when you get to trail running, if you run UTCT this weekend and you try and do a pacing analysis and then you compare that to, you know, maybe there's a couple of friends I've seen that have 
entered the lottery for Western States next year. So maybe you then go run Western States next year. Yeah. It's really difficult to compare your pacing between two different races because of the uh, variable terrain um, and distance also has an impact. So maybe the one race is a bit longer than the other. That also impacts our pacing. So pacing in, in trail running is, is challenging. Um, I mentioned earlier that typically you would look at a relative pace in each segment um, compared to the average pace. What's actually typically done is they take the first segment and they use that as, as 100%. That's the marker of, of your starting speed. And then they express everything, all the segments subsequent to that relative to your starting segment pace rather than overall pace. Yes. But what I've done in, in my um, trail running research and our pacing research is I said, listen, that doesn't really make sense because if you look at UTCT, for example, you're going to start off with quite a significant climb up to uh, yes. Neck Corner. And yes. if you're using that as your first, your 100%, then of course everything else is going to look faster because yes. you were running quite slowly when you were going up that hill. So I've I've kind of said, let's look at the overall race pace. So that might be like 10 minutes per kilometer when you're running UTCT or for the for your average runner, 11 minutes a K. Um, let's look at that overall. Yeah. And then we'll express e each segment relative to your overall pace. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually I'm wondering now if that's how the general kind of tracking systems work for those of you who have crewed runners at long distance events if everything's based on kind of the initial segment, something like UTCT where you start with a long climb, um, that could be a reason why you miss your runner through one of the aid stations. You think it's going to take them longer or whatever the case is. That's just something yeah. I thought was interesting. Um, and Simon, the segmental, um, okay, no, I'm actually, we're going to get there just now, but so we're, we're kind of focusing on the pacing in the, in the trail running world. And, but, as we mentioned, even in your last episode, most of what we know about trail running came from road running and has since evolved. Mm. But how is pacing different for trail running versus road running? Um, I mean, so we've learned something from the road runners, but we know we can't just directly apply this. So what? how would you yes. have a different sort of approach to the pacing analysis in the trail world? Yeah, well, this is this is evolving and changing um, as we speak, uh, really. I mean, I'm busy. I'm busy with an article. I'm hoping to submit within the next month uh, to the Journal of Sports Sciences and looking at a, a pacing analysis of 2021 UTCT 100K data. Yes. Um, and even in in my article, there's some differences in terms of what I've been looking at and what other people have looked at in the past. So it is, it's evolving and we're trying to get to a place of best practice in pacing analyses and trail running because it isn't as simple as just copy pasting across to, uh, from, from road to trail. One of the big issues that we have with pacing analyses, you mentioned uh, the article by Martin Hoffman um, published in 2014, where he looked at, I think it was, 20 something years worth of um, data in, in the Western States endurance run. Yeah. And um, he compared kind of top five runners. So what make, what's, makes the difference between somebody who wins and then the runner comes second through fifth. Um, and he looked yes. at all of that data over 25 years. Um, and in, in that analysis, he used very much um, the, the, kind of standard pacing analysis but the limitation there is that you're reliant on 
time point data. So in the in the case of uh, UTCT, if I can bring it back to uh, UTCT, you've got um, on the old 100K route, you started in, in Cape Town. And then your first timing point um, section was at Signal Hill, which was approximately 10 kilometers after the start. And that had um, quite a, a big climb. You first kind of dropped down and then you had a long climb and then you dropped down again to Signal Hill. And then yeah. your next timing segment was eight kilometers later at Kloofnek, which was a, a net downhill. Um, and then you had a um, timing point. Uh, I think you, you had one at the top of Plateau Clip or if not on the Table Mountain aid station, there was a timing point. Yes. Um, now, if, for those of you who know Clatico Gorge, you'll know you've got to do a 750 meter climb. There. So if you're relying on it's a stairs on, climb, it's different. Yeah, and it's <laughs> absolutely brutal. And if you're relying on on electronic time chip data on for segments that are so variable, both in distance, how long they are, what yeah. the net elevation gain or loss is the absolute elevation gain and loss because naturally in trail running you run sections that are uphill and downhill within one of those segments and so it makes it really challenging to to do pacing analyses in in trail running particularly in ultra trail running where you might be far away from any kind of what not humanity uh, far away civilization from, from <laughs> civilization you, uh, you're far away from civilization um, not to mention how uh, terrain affects pacing, how uh, slope gradient affects pacing. Um, so it's it's a difficult one to answer. Um, there are still, it's more, I, I would say for now, we need to interpret the data with caution, um, yeah. understanding the limitations of the pacing analyses. Um, what I hope that we can get to is potentially a, a place of using a different metric to actually measure effort. Remember, if you go back to kind of your operational yes. def definition of pacing, it's not about speed. It's got nothing to do with speed. It's got to do with how we distribute work or our energy yes. during a, a race, over the course of a race. We always yeah. have the end point in mind and your body is always working to minimize um the the change to its physiological like homeostasis it's it's yes. kind of normal normal state yeah um so if we can use a different metric that might be more powerful for us in in situ so live like as we're running yeah um how, how much effort am i putting in it's difficult yes. to know if i'm if i'm walking up southern peak um or yes. if i'm screaming down nursery ravine yes it's difficult for me to know like i'm looking at my pace and i'm thinking wow i'm i'm really putting in hard effort here but actually yeah. when i'm when i'm going down nursery it's the same effort that i put in when i was crawling up southern yes. so it, it's difficult um i initially started looking at heart rate for this so can we use heart rate as a as a measure yeah. of effort but the problem with heart rate is that it's exponentially affected by concentric muscle action work so yes. when you need to climb uphill and you've got to move your center of mass um, against the the force of gravity you've got uh, much uh, more muscle recruitment in these large muscle areas around the hips and knees and um, that increases the heart rate uh, load 
significantly compared to eccentric actions, which is when you're running downhill and you're kind of breaking, going yeah. downhill, the heart rate doesn't spike as much. Um, but there's still massive load on the body. I mean, you've, you're absorbing the, the weight and the force of gravity. Um, you know, the ground reaction forces are much higher going downhill, acting through the, through the foot to the lower, lower limb. Um, and so, and actually during downhill running, you, there's massive changes in terms of inflammation, um, muscle pain yes. uh, because of those eccentric actions. So you, you'd be very uh, unwise to try and, you know, make up time on, on the downhills because you went slowly on the uphills. Um, so yeah. even, even heart rate is, is limited in that sense. I do think it's better than pace, um, to keep yeah. a track of, of, of your energy expenditure. Um, I think the future of pacing is going to be in the use of power meters. So I'm really, I really want to do this as a kind of ne next phase post PhD yes. is to use things like stride. I mentioned this in the last podcast, S T R Y D. Um, no, I'm not sponsored by them. Stride, if you listen, <laughs> please send me some. Send me some pods. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen some some good. Um, I've seen some good research lately on the the reliability and the validity of of Stride um, accelerometry to measure power. Yeah. Um, so I think power is probably a better metric. It's used in cycling. Those of you who watch cycling will probably know when as soon as you start going uphill or downhill be looking at watts per kilogram to give you an idea of, of how much effort you're expending um so i think that's probably the future of of yeah. analyses but it, again how to get access to that um you know you've yeah. got to get participant consent to get access to their data uh, all of those things are are barriers but i think that's going to give us a clearer picture the last thing that i will say on on this matter if you if you starting to get concerned by all, all the technology and the numbers is is there are a lot of people who run races um without any of this information i remember listening yes. to your first episode with your heart and i think it was in that one that you mentioned he ran one of his otters with no no watch no yes, nothing this year's otter he just went on feel you know mm -hmm. and and again because he's experienced he kind of knows when he can put the hammer down, when he needs to yes. dial back. And so you don't have to rely on these numbers to yeah. pace effectively. Yes. The more you do something, the better you'll be kind of pacing. And I, I think another thing just around efforts and what is, are we looking at pace, heart rate, power meters? Um, What I'm interested to see, I don't think it's quite there yet, but it's for ultra running pacing strategies and how we look at it is, the effect of kind of accumulated fatigue, whether it's neuromuscular um, kind of glycogen depletion, your psychological fatigue for anyone who's doing the yes. 100 miler this weekend. Um, we had a workshop earlier this week and we were discussing what happens when you go into night two, you know, and light, lighting is another thing like that sort of focus. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that um, have an effect. But with that said, there's also some encouraging kind of consistency in research that's been done around. Um, yeah. And we're going to comment on that now of you essentially when uh, I think Hoffman saw this, I think um, I'm, I hope I don't butcher this name too much. Jenna Trini also saw this where it's yes. the, the better pacing analysis or the even pacing analysis that was, I mean, pacing um, that was 
strategy. executed yeah. by strategy that was executed by the top runners. They avoided slowing in the latter half of the race. That was the one thing, which is wild. Yes. When you think of something like 161 Ks and you somehow avoid slowing down. And then with variation, again, I think when I read through a lot of the research and kind of prep for this variety in my mind, I was like, no, but you will have variety because of the gradient, because of the this, because of the that. Yes. As we said, we're comparing apples with apples. So there is... We're not comparing the pacing strategy of 100K or say something like the Comrades, a road race to UTCT. So another yes. just disclaimer. Yeah. 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 I think um, just to, to touch on that, so we can get back to to um, different pacing strategies and what do we see in, in ultra trails uh, a little bit later. But just the, the reality is that the body will slow down eventually. You know, it's not... Yes. <laughs> Even the greats. Uh, we we all like to think that we are superhuman, um, and 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 we are. I mean, anyone who's doing this kind of race, let's just let's just put it out there. I mean, I ran a marathon last week. We chatted about this, Emily, and I during that race, I got like eighteen k's in, and I just thought to myself, how do people run a hundred kilometers? How do they run a hundred <laughs> miles? How do they run further than that? You know, I'm I'm eighteen k's into a marathon. And I'm just about ready to throw in the towel, uh, which I didn't caveat, but um, yes. you know, it's it's incredible that people even consider doing this kind of thing. But but, yeah. but we do slow down and there's reasons for that. So you mentioned glycogen depletion. Um, so glycogen is the body's main energy source when we exercise that kind of race pace, a higher intensity. And glycogen is stored when we eat carbohydrates. This is why carbo loading used to be a thing right people said no we need yes. to get increase our stores of of glycogen um which is now as far as i know i'm not a nutritionist but as far as i know um no longer a thing we we get more than enough glycogen in our in our regular diet um so carbohydrates are this really important fuel source during kind of racing yeah um and these muscle and, and liver glycogen stores, which we use and we break down to, to provide energy, they do deplete over the course of, of a race. And, you know, as they start to deplete, we get changes in substrate utilization, essentially what we are using in our body to generate energy. So that starts to change to become much more dependent on fats and triglycerides. Um, and we know from our physiology that fats and triglycerides, they take longer to break down and metabolize to generate ATP. So we kind of, some people might explain that feeling as hitting the wall. Um, yeah. You know, we're no longer, to, no longer able to keep up with the, with the effort required. Um, and so we will start to slow down because we get those, um, we get that ATP in a little bit more slowly from those factors. And it also speaks to why fueling during running is so important because if we can increase our blood glucose levels um, yeah. and delay the, the kind of emptying of our glycogen stores, then we'll be able to, to exercise for longer. Um, but the one that I really want to want to get onto is, is neuromuscular fatigue. I think this is the thing that, that really affects ultra trail runners. Um, yeah. This is, Neuromuscular fatigue is, is kind of characterized by a reduction in the ability to generate like maximal muscle force. So strong muscle actions 
doing your climbs, for example, or resisting the force of gravity when you're, when you're running downhill, steep downhills. But it also re reduces our ability to control submaximal forces. And I think a lot of runners might feel like in those latter stages, they're really struggling with their foot placement. You know, they feel a bit uncoordinated. Um, and this is because there's, there's issues with the uh, within the local muscle fibers in terms of their excitation and relaxation and how they kind of couple and, and uh, serve to move you, move you forward. So um, neuromuscular fatigue, I think, is, is something that plays a massive part in, yeah. um, in our pacing. You mentioned Matteo Genetrini. Um, yes. Is this, I wanted colleagues. to ask, the, the cost of running, the J-shape, Tell us all about yes. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So Matteo Genetrini, they, they did a study on uh, kind of UT. So it was UTMB, which is 100 miler, CCC, which is 100K, I think. Yeah. And then Javelina races. I don't know where they are, but so it was five UTMBs, five CCCs. Um, three javelina 100ks and three javelina 100 mile races and those were kind yep. of in the mid 2010s most of those races so they had yep. six, 16,000 finishes um, yes. that they looked at for, for this pacing analysis which is a huge data set and I, f I thought what was quite sad was that of those 16,500 finishes 14,500 women so that's something yeah. that we can we I know only 2000 females I'm like come on <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's it's not great but um you know that's that's the state of of the sport um and what they found was that those higher level runners um so again most of these pacing analyses will compare either top top 10 or top 5 to the rest of the field or they might split the field into quartiles so top 25% top uh, bottom 25%, middle 50%. Um, but the higher level runners ran the uphill slower. Yeah. Um, again, not absolute pace. Because if you look at a high level runner, they are they are crushing you going uphill. Yes, yes they um, seem so not so please don't don't get my words mixed up. Uh, not not absolute speed, but relative to their overall speed, they yeah. ran the uphills slower and they ran the downhills faster than lower level runners and what they kind of suggested which is which is great this is something that really holds me in my phd so thank you <laughs> uh, Matteo genetrini um but what they suggested there is that um higher level runners are better adapted to the demands yes. of ultra trail running not only because they're better at navigating technical downhills like your Robbie Rory types um, yes. <laughs> but um, also also likely because of adaptations that have developed in the local muscles because of yes. how much training they do and for how long yes. they've done it so kind so of accumulated able... training experience on a physiological yes. thing kind of wavelength but also on the psychological knowing yeah it's basically yes. just yes. carry so, on so... everybody just keep just keep running ultras <laughs> Yes, and, and the best, uh, undoubtedly, the best thing that you can do to become a better trail runner is to run more trails. Like um, uh, I listened to Brad's episode uh, yesterday. Sorry, Brad. Um, you know, strength and conditioning is important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but undoubtedly, the best thing that you can do to improve your trail running is to run more on trails. Yeah. Um, and so these, these high-level runners, 
run faster on the downhill sections than the lower level runners and it's because they can tolerate those eccentric muscle contractions which yeah which really disrupts the muscle fibers that cause pain in the in the muscles um, yeah. problems with ele- electrical signaling in the muscles um and what i also noticed in that study just to finish on on genetrini was that the the difference in downhill speed that, that kind of we know that there's a gap between amateur runners and high level runners but the magnitude of that gap gets even bigger the longer a race goes on yes so the longer yes. the race is more the slow runners slow down on the downhill sections yes um, and that's you know that's not the case um for uphill so that's it's not for for both uphill and downhill running here comes an ambulance um it's for <laughs> it's specifically for downhill running where you tend to see an even greater magnitude later on in the race. And, you know, again, that just shows um, that downhill running is really important. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing that, that you know, why we slow down, go back to that, is just those psychological factors, which you, which yes. you mentioned. Um, you know, that's the, that's the mental toughness. That's the resilience. That's yeah. the, um, you know, that's going back to that, uh teleo anticipation you know what's in front of you um you 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 know what to expect and you push through um so so all of those things when we can look we can talk a little bit more about different pacing strategies now but it's very normal to get slower later on in a race yes Um, but it's about how do we optimize pacing right pacing yes looking at pacing strategies is all just finding the small wins how can we optimize yes. a little bit better yeah. so within that variation how do we make it just slightly less every time we go out and do it it's just like making kind of a training gain or adaptation in training you know how can you adjust for something more optimal because we want to see improvement right specifically elites yes and as things as the kind of racing gets more and more competitive um, I think back in the day, maybe 10 years ago, if you were just talented, light and quick, um, that was enough. And now it's coming down to the smaller margins of the playing field is a lot more level in some ways. Yes. And now I need to look at my pacing strategy, my this, my that. But yeah. And Simon, I mean, let's take some like UTCT. I know we keep referring to it. It's for the sake of it is this weekend for people who don't know. I'm sure most people know mm. Ultra Trail Cape Town. It's one of our kind of pride and joys of what is on the race calendar in South Africa. There are five different distances with very different route profiles. You've got the miler, the 100K, what was the 65, which is now the 55K, a wild 35K that Simon can tell you about another time, and a 21 kilometer. And for the the shorter distances, um, shorter, I'm going to say 35 is short. Um, I'm sorry for everybody who thinks it. Yeah, anyway. And for something like the 100K and the 100 miler, the more I look at it, the more I look at the route and just the magnitude of what the runners are taking on. It does feel like executing a pacing strategy is impossible, um, but I know it isn't. Hmm. So how should runners be pacing their ultra trail marathons at UTCT this weekend? Well, first of all, there's there's a few kind of points of of wisdom that I would lean on, and um, the uh, the first one was uh, Martin Hoffman pacing by winners of 161 kilometer mountain ultra marathon, which is Western States, published in 2014, and then uh, Daniel Suter 
and colleagues, uh, including Beat Nettle, who's quite noteworthy in Falkershire. Um, there are a few others in there. Uh, Beat Nettle's done a lot of pacing analysis work in the past, um, yeah. which is which is also somebody to to look up if you're interested. But um, Daniel Sutton colleagues they published um, uh, another big data set study in 2020. Uh, looking at UTMB. So both of these are 100-mile disciplines. Um, and both of them described kind of optimal pacing strategies in, in 100 milers as more even. So not to be confused with even. The even pacing would be having you know, next to no uh, variation in speed between segments uh, for the duration of the race. And again, I mentioned the coefficient of variation earlier. So to give you a, a reference point, um, Iliad Kipchoge, when he broke the world record at Berlin Marathon 2022, um, using his 5K split data, his coefficient of variation was 1.4%. Um, he actually ran a, a positive split, so he got slower um, over yeah. the course of, of the marathon. Um, and so according to, to the literature, even he could st could stand to be better with pacing. Um, in fact, if you if you compare that to the Ineos one five nine challenge, yes. they had uh, ele electric uh, time system, yes. so every kilometer during that challenge was evenly paced between two yes. minutes forty eight a k and two minutes fifty two a k. So yes. Um, so and there was that like in, beam that he ran in. I remember yes, the blocks, exactly, and I'm like, imagine. 100%. Imagine the beam going up Fata Clip. It would just leave me behind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you don't get those in, in trail running, um, but equally you don't even get them in, in normal marathons, right? You have to pace it yourself. Yeah. Um, but but that, just to give an idea, the coefficient of variation um, for that effort was at 1.4%. Now what Martin Hoffman found was that for elite uh, runners, so the difference between the winners – um, and then the other top five finishers, um, the coefficient of variation over Western states was 12% for the winners. So about 10 times more variation in segment speed, relative speed. And the top five finishers were 14 to 15%. So even at that level where you really look, you're comparing professionals with professionals here, yeah. the winners had a more even pacing strategy um, than the, the rest of the top five. When we did a, a analysis of UTCT's um, 100K uh, uh, race between 2017 and 2019, so that was a student research project I did with Vika Stradom, Janku Bosov, and Mark Luntman. Um, Janku, very good uh, co uh, trail running coach as well. So yeah. shout out to Janku. If you, if you don't know him, you can check him out through probably through Trail Coach. Um, <clears throat> um, they did a pacing analysis of uh, the UTCT finishers. So all finishers between 2017 and 2019 on the 100K route. And they found that the top 10 had a coefficient of variation of 18%. So again, wow. variation between this, those segments. And they were we narrowed it down, I think, to seven segments over the course of the 100Ks between the start and finish. Um, again, lots happens between those segments. Um, so it's normal, both from a from a computational statistical perspective that we probably expect to see more variation compared to um, in a marathon effort with Kipchoge having like 5K splits or whatever. Um, 
but the rest of the field had a greater coefficient of variation of 20%. Um, so again, just showing you that the more even you can be, the better. However, in ultra trail running, it is normal for there to be variation in pacing. Yeah. So um, try to keep your efforts evenly paced where you can. Um, however, the one thing that the lower level runners tend to do, and this is something um, which was picked up um, in, a, in a couple of studies that I have, have read through and also with my um, subsequent pacing analysis of, of UTCT data from 2021, uh, is that there seems to be a herd effect. So yeah. the herd effect is, like I said, white line fever, where the herd starts in a pen, literally a cattle pen, and uh, when the gun goes off, everybody yeah. just starts running. And what tends to happen with lower-level runners is they get sucked in. So what I've found, I won't give too much away, but what I found in in the first few segments of a of a much more in-depth segment analysis using over 46 segments over the course of UTCT is that lower level runners tend to run the first few segments, the first probably quarter to third of the race, yeah. significantly faster than high level runners. Again, yes. relative pace. So relative to their overall pace, they go out hard. And yeah. what happens is that the the high level runners, because they're well trained, uh, because they can handle the neuromuscular fatigue, because their nutrition strategies are probably better, because their pacing, that um, teleanticipatory system is more fine-tuned, they actually increase in speed later on in the race. Yes. So they do. we do see for both groups, we see like a general decay in running pace over the course of the race. Yeah. But what happens with the high-level runners is we see this reverse J-shape, essentially – a J has a you know a, a decreasing axis, so it's getting progressively slow over the race. But then yeah. towards the end, there's a there's a tail, a kick in the, in the tail, so to speak. And these high level runners, they are running those that last third or quarter of the race significantly faster yeah. than what the, the low level runners are. So the number one thing you can do, in my view, um, is go out a little bit easier than you normally do. Yeah. and try and, and reserve energy in the tank for later. And again, you know, we know from the Matteo Genetrini study that lower-level runners struggle to run those downhill sections at the same pace later in the race. Yes, so that, that, doesn't, that doesn't fatigue. mean – Yes, but it doesn't mean you should go hard, um, yes. you know, from, from the get-go. It means if you keep some energy in the tank for later on, you're yes. actually going to be able to, to tolerate the – severe pain yes. of running downhills when your legs are shot and you've got nothing left yeah and I think um I mean what Hoffman's kind of observation was having being able to slow down less in the second half of the race that's not elite to elite but dif the difference between the top five and everybody else and I know um I will have to go and fact check there's a lot of videos and commentary from people who've kind of done western states year and year out around whoever leads through this aid station, I think it's just shy of 120 Ks is not going to win yes. the race. There's like this, do you know what I'm yes. talking about? There's this general, like you don't want to be that yeah. guy because that means you've gone out too hard. There's a massive long section just after the 120. I, I'm not, I don't know all the aid station names, but it's an, like an arid yeah. dry desert section. And it's like the kind of breeding ground for, 
blowing up um for being too hot and for people to overtake you and i think ryan in his bright sands all south african when he did it um yes yeah he ran an absolutely incredible race and he had this thing in his mind like don't be the first guy and i was he the first guy i think he was yeah anyway and there was this whole or he overtook something he was like i wasn't the first guy i think wasn't that the year that i think that was the year that jim bombed out there's a really good documentary on on youtube i think it's like lost on highway something or found on highway whatever one of the highways is there um and you know even take that anecdote of of jim ormsey um he's somebody who typically doesn't mind going out in front and and trying to break course records but even he as good and phenomenal of an athlete as he is in in the you know the past few years he's learned how to run with a pack at the beginning yes. and not get sucked into that white line fever that you know go out yeah. um organs blazing yeah um and and so you know there's the the age old um classic the tortoise and the hare sometimes it's better yeah. to um go out a little bit slower yeah uh, in these longer races and just and like another fun kind of practical example that if i'm sure there's data on it that we could probably actually go and pull but this year at UTMB, we saw this in action where Jim Wamsey yes. and Zach Miller, Nick and Nick, um, kind of, it was an extremely exciting race, but Jim starting off very conservatively for him. He didn't lead the pack. And then with, I kind of, I'm like, is it, I think it was 30 Ks ago, maybe even 20 Ks ago, there was this epic overtake on single track. Jim moved from second into first and then proceeded to just make that gap bigger and bigger. I mean, I couldn't yes. believe I was watching the live feed instead of working um and i think, I think my, my dad called me and he's like Geez, this guy's just getting faster and i was like yes this is yeah. what we want to see there's yeah. something left in left in the tank and if you take that and compare it to what happened to him last year that is him improving his pacing strategy he was very clear about that even in kind of his pre-race interviews about that that he needs to do something different because for the last x many years it didn't work the other way um so yes, i was like exactly. even jim even jim guys does it <laughs> we, we can all we can all improve i um going back to to the work that um victor and yanku and, and mark did on pacing uh a really nice kind of plot that we did was like a spaghetti plot of over those three years we had we looked at the top 10 so there should be 30 runners 30 yeah. top 10 runners um this was in the in the men's side um, there should be 30, but we there were only 24 complete data sets go issued with the electronics timing system, essentially. Yeah. And so we looked at just plotting those 24 runners, just looking at the high-level runners. Um, and what we found was that, again, this variable pacing. So, you know, segment one, they, they all went out slightly faster than their average race pace. Segment two, which was um, up Kloofnik, uh, sorry, uh, Platicook Gorge, was slower than the average race pace. Segment three going down towards Hart Bay, um, Landadno area was faster than the average race pace. So you see this like zigzag pattern for all of these runners. And then you've got two runners who went out on that first segment at 165 and 175% of their average race pace. They went out seriously hard in the first uh, segment. And even in the second segment, they were um, still at about 150% of their average race pace, whereas others had yeah. slowed down drastically. So basically, 
these runners, and we don't know who they are because we, we don't, you know, we de-identify the information, but um, these guys who were going up Cataclip were still going faster than the average race pace. Yeah. And so you've got this, it's a really interesting graph because you've got these two runners who went out in these first two segments in, insanely hard. And yeah. then by segment three, they were already languishing behind uh, the others in terms of av- yeah. average race pace. So segments three, four, and five were all slower than the rest of the group. And these two guys, they finished 17th and 20th out of 24. So if you take that race time, yes. um, you know, uh, 24 individual race times, those are the 17th and 20th yeah. fastest. Yeah. So the winners are, are doing the same kind of, you know, take it relatively easy at first segment, Yes. work your way into it keep energy in the bank yes. um but yeah with that with that reverse j shape so we typically see towards the end of the race um people kind of get a second wind and yeah. they, they're able to exert more more effort but again if you're a low level runner and you've expended too much energy leading up to that um, then you're not you're going to have nothing left in the tank yeah so i think just to summarize simon what we're saying is know if you're an elite or some elite in the category i think be reasonable about what sort of pacing strategy you can execute don't get caught up in the white line fever and keep something in the tank for later um yeah and also i think pat pat yourself on the back ultra running's hard and just as you keep doing it your improvement yeah (laughs) 100 percent. that's it's a great summary because you know if you are doing it for the first time um, or you you haven't done it many times, or maybe you've run an ultra, but now you, you're running a 100K or 100 mile for the first time, mm. is is don't expect perfection, I think would be my first piece of advice. You're not going to pace it perfectly. Yeah. But the best thing that you can do when you're running those kinds of, of distances is, is do yourself the service of not getting yourself into trouble later on in the race. Yes. Um, you know, sw- swallow the pride a little bit go out a little bit easier than yeah. even if it's just a little bit easier than what you would have. If if, yes. if listening to this podcast today has just convinced you to go just a little bit easier. Yes. Um, but, but the reality is that if you're an experienced seasoned runner, um, then you, you probably need to, to back yourself back judgment. Um, yeah. if, if you feel that there's certain sections that you need to, um, yeah. to push, then, then do that. In fact, another piece of research that, that I've, uh, looked at which was published just this year um very recently by yeah. pedro corby santa maria and colleagues they looked at um pacing during the occ um by utmb which is a, a shorter ultra race so those of you running the 55 or maybe the 35 this weekend they they looked at a, a much shorter race and what they found was that um, pacing variability so we've been talking this whole time about you know keeping the variability low, but they actually found in shorter races that missing variability was correlated with better performance. Um, and what they suggested here was that higher level runners have a better ability to adapt their pace according to the demands of the race in front of them. Yeah. And again, I think that that goes back to um, a learned behavior, understanding yeah. what's in front of you. But certainly we, we tend to see that as races get shorter, um, so that decay in, in speed is diminished over time. So the longer races, we see a greater decay in pace over time, whereas the shorter races, 
um, you know, we mentioned those four different factors that kind of lead to to um, slowing down a little bit earlier. Uh, shorter races that seems to play less of an effect. So if you know, I would still say back yourself. If there's a section where you feel you need to to put in a hard effort here, go for it. Yes. Um, but just just err on the side of caution. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's very easy to say that behind the, you know our microphones here. But yeah. 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 Let's see when we our next appearance at UTCT, Simon. If we if we listen to ourselves. Um. Yes. And Simon, I think we've. I mean, we've covered what is it pacing? What is pacing? How is it useful within the different distances of 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 ultra trail running? We've looked quite a lot at what's been done. I mean, you're busy with the sort of research as well, and we know you can't reveal too much. But where yes. do we go from here? in terms of yeah, pacing analysis for trail runners, what are the limitations as the research currently stands? Um, what would you like to see? Yeah. Um, man, it's really hard. Um, like I said, the, the, with the power meters, that would be good. I think doing prospective um, study designs is yep. ideal. So, you know, a lot of these study designs are retrospective and observational. So we just rely on, the data that's there and then we describe what's happening yeah but we don't necessarily we don't necessarily know what happens if we uh, put a pacing strategy in place so there was a recent article em and I, I don't have it on maybe i can add it to the to the show notes i can send it afterwards but cool. there's one that was published this year on you know, what happens with overall performance when we actually change pacing strategies. So um, again, some of them, uh, this this would be two groups. So group one, we say, right, you need to go out really easy. Group two, you go out hard and let's see yeah. what your overall performance is. Now, even better. So this study was, was limited. I don't think they had a control group um, or like a, a washout period and a over design where then you know group one then becomes group two and group two becomes group one so i don't think it was was you know fully developed in terms of the study design but what they did find was that again in shorter races i don't know the exact distance but it was trail running that when they asked a group to go out hard um first take it easy it didn't have much of an effect on the overall time so that throws a cat amongst the pigeons certainly in terms of everything else that's been reported thus far in these yeah. observational studies but i'd like to see more research in that area where we're ac actively trying to control and change pacing studies and see how that mm -hmm. affects the outcome now the problem with that like in this study that i've that i've mentioned is that unless you have a a washout period and then a crossover design you don't know whether that's due to pacing strategy or some other chance factors potentially. Um, so, you know, there's still limitations with that design. And the problem with doing research like this is if I had to tell you right now, okay, Emily, um, you're going to run UCCT 100K race today and I want you to control your pace and stay under this pace for the first, you know, 50Ks or whatever, and then you know, a couple of weeks from now, you can run it again and I want you to run it faster. You're going to look at me and say, absolutely not. I will yes. not do that because yeah. I'm not, you know, an idiot. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to put my body through that. So yeah. there's challenges in in doing pacing analyses in like the ultra long uh, distances yes. just because yeah. of how demanding they are on the body. Yeah. Um, and the state so of, it's, of the body coming in 
all, yeah, yeah, all of those it's, things. It's a, mind, it's a minefield. It's an absolute yeah. minefield. And and that's why there is value in these studies of of um, uh, Suter and Genetrini and stuff where, they, where they're looking at 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. Mm. It's because you account for all of those things. You account for, okay, person X had a bad day and they actually just jogged at home. You know, they yeah. didn't put in 100% effort and person why I didn't sleep very well um and you know person z uh was you know throwing up from kilometer 100 to 160 so they yeah. can't because you, you've got a kind of bigger sample to draw from they account for all of those factors yeah um so i don't know it's a complex answer there's a lot to to consider um but hopefully yeah. we can do some more prospective study designs um and, cool. and go from there I think another thing in this, uh, you guys are going to have to tune in for the next kind of trail science episode, but it's also the difference in pacing strategies between men and women. I know some of the research yes. we looked at, it was, you know, there's 14,000 male participants and only 2,800 odd female participants. But um, this came yeah. up in the very first episode of Trail Culture with Taryn about running brave. And, you know, that that white yes. line fever tends to apply more to the guys than the girls. Um, yes. Women have a more conservative yeah. approach and they kind of more naturally tend to even pace whether that's yes. we can get into how decisions are so, made so is it a training thing is it an experience thing <laughs> we, we can we'll definitely get into that in, in another episode but just you know broadly speaking from from some of the reading i've done um is that women runners tend to take or rank lower on risk taking indices yes um, and so and, and risk taste risk taking is something like Jim Wormsley at the start line. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go till I blow. You know, yeah. if if I don't so, if so I don't break the stick. course record, I'm not going to finish the race, and that's it. Um, yes. And so, one thing that's you know, is it men are from Mars, women are from <laughs> Venus? That's not exactly the case. Uh, one thing that is true is that there is variation in pace for both yeah. men and women yes. trail running, um, but there there certainly are some differences. Uh, for example, we seem to see a greater drop off in pace in female runners than uh, male runners. That was yeah. from the uh, Suter study. But again, that could also just be to do with the fact that there's far fewer female athletes, um, you know, from yeah. example, to draw from. If we had equally sized groups, would we yes. see the same uh, magnitude of effect or not? So mm. it's certainly a space, again, that needs to be improved. And the great thing is that with more women pursuing trail running and all avenues of sport uh, participation as as professional careers there's going to be more demand to to know those things to fill those yes. gaps um, yes. so we can certainly do better in in that area as well and um simon last question from my side is how is the pacing analysis of the utct 100k you mentioned what you did with with yanku and and the rest of them but how is yes. this fitting in with the broader scope of your phd uh, last time yeah, so we what, tied you on, you were out here collecting data. I know you can't mention too much. We can't wait for you to publish things, but yeah, give us what you yeah. can. Well, one of the things that um, I needed to to kind of go and, and assess before developing the tests that I did with the runners in the lab, and those of you that were in the lab will know what we did um, if you're listening. But one of the things I needed to do was to really consider what should we put the runners through in the lab for, for my PhD? What should the yeah. tests look like? How fast should they be? At what gradient should they be? 
keeping in mind all of the limitations of working in a controlled setting um, on, a, on a treadmill compared to being out in a mountain somewhere. So the pacing analysis I did really was exploratory to help me kind of figure out what my lab conditions were going to look like. Very and the cool. one thing that I will say is that in, in my study, uphill running seemed to be, so uphill pacing seemed to be a stronger predictor of overall performance than level or downhill pacing. And now that's not to say that level and downhill running aren't important. I, I would argue level running is is probably quite low in terms of importance because there's so little of it that's done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not to say they aren't important, but I think the primary reason there is that if you look at a, a race, a 100K race, take TCT, it's a, it's a loop. So if you do, I think it's about 5,000 meters of climb on the 100K. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is on the 100 mile. But if 7,800. <laughs> so if, if you're doing if you're doing 7,800 climb, you're also doing 7,800 descent. If you're starting yeah. and finishing at the same oh. place, and and Rough. now again the issue, the reason that the uphill pacing performance had a, a closer relationship or correlation with with overall performance, is purely because we spend more time in uphill running conditions than we do in downhill running conditions. Yeah. I think yeah. it was. I'm speaking now off the top of my head, but it might've been almost double the amount of time spent running uphill compared to downhill. And that's even though we have a pretty good, you know, 50, 50 split in terms of the amount of distance spent running uphill and distance spent running downhill, yeah. we just spend longer in those uphill conditions. So, you know, I use that yeah. as a framework to develop my submaximal test yeah. and, um, We'll, we'll we'll get more into that i'm sure once they are uh, approved for for yes. publication so yeah awesome simon this has been so cool it feels like time flew um i think i'm excited to see what comes out of this yeah area of research um but i mean yeah guys thanks for joining us for our first episode of uh trail science under the trail culture umbrella um, you can expect to see more of this. I think we actually chatted about bringing people in to say, what do you guys want to see? I mean, we've got stuff that we're excited about that we're being we're nerding out over. Um, but yeah, we hope you found it informative. We're going to be following up. You can expect to see something, another episode um, in December next month. So um, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to your, your guys' feedback and thanks for for joining. Simon, thanks for your time, your expertise, for sharing a bit of um, your personal research with us as well we do appreciate it thanks emily thanks for having me again and um, i'm looking forward to the next one me too great hey everyone there you have it our first trail science episode with simon deval and rooted in dirt we hope you found it informative and yes you guys can expect to see more of these science specific episodes in the near future we are also going to be working on making the connection a little bit better um, so that the sound quality just stays up there. Again, if you guys have any questions, if there's anything you would like to see, um, post in the comments, send us a DM on Instagram. Um, we're really looking forward to chatting about things that are not only relevant, but also exciting for all of you. Thanks for tuning in. So stoked to have you guys and we will see you next time.